my plan from that point was to die before the cops found me. And I made a good little run out of it. I was, I was on the run for about four months. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. I'm here with Matt Peterson today, and uh, I've been looking forward to finally sitting down and talking to you. We've been messaging for quite a while, but haven't shook hands until a few minutes ago. So uh, this is good. Um, Why don't you start by letting us know you are an individual living in long-term recovery, right? And what what does that mean for for you? Uh, That means I went from uh, completely hopeless, suicidal, homeless... um, alone to, uh, being, I don't know, being a, a productive member of society, if you yeah. will. Um, what's your sobriety date? Uh, 11, 12, 13. Okay, great. Congrats. That's fun stuff. Yeah. Getting there is not fun, but so why don't you just, uh, start with telling us your, your journey. All right. Um, well, I grew up in a good home. I'm an, uh, I'm an only child. Uh, my father, he was a Southern Baptist preacher. Uh, my grandfather, his dad, was a Southern Baptist preacher also. Um, so I, I grew up in the church. My mother played piano. My journey, I guess, started, uh, it was kind of ironic because uh, I was leaving church and the church we were going to at the time, we had our main building on one side of Dixie Highway and then our gym on the other side of Dixie Highway. I was at the gym crossing Dixie Highway to get to the main church. And while I was attempting that, um, the pastor of Fellowship of Believers uh, actually ran me over and my friend uh, in his church van. Um, I didn't break any bones or anything, luckily, but um, it was that, that was my introduction to opiates. How, I started, how old were you? Uh, eleven. No kidding. I was eleven. Wow. Yeah, and they just gave me Vicodin, no mm-hmm. questions asked. You know, um, like I said, no broken bones, no serious injuries at all. I walked out of there like they took me to the hospital just to kind of just do a double check on me to make sure everything was okay. And even though everything was, they still, I mean, gave me opiates uh, just like that. It was, it was really simple. Um, so that, like I said, that was my introduction to opiates. Um, about two years later, I was 13 years old. Um, as I said, I was an only child, you know, I, I was awkward. I had a bowl cut and braces, you know, I was that kind of kid and, uh, I just wanted to fit in. So, um, the group of friends that I ended up linking up with in my neighborhood, um, I mean, they were involved with, you know, alcohol, they smoked cigarettes and smoked pot and, you know, me just wanting to fit in and do what they did. Um, well, I did all three of those things in the, in the same night. I smoked pot for the first time. I drank my first beer and I smoked my first cigarette all within like, I don't know, 90 seconds of each other. And then, uh, it was, I don't know. I loved it. Like it, just the, the awkwardness was gone. The, the fear of, you know, and the social anxiety, it was all gone. Everything was gone. I finally felt accepted. And, um, let's see, fast forward to about 16 years old. I had my wisdom teeth taken out and that same group of friends, um, I was prescribed Vicodin again for, uh, having my wisdom teeth taken out. And that same group of friends, they showed me how to crush up pills and snort them. Um, so that, that's really where my addiction took off because uh, I didn't know anything about addiction or withdrawal or detox or chemical dependency. I didn't know any of those things. Like I grew up with the D.A.R.E. program. It was yeah. simply just say no. 
And that was about the extent of my, uh, my knowledge about drug addiction. Um, but I didn't feel it was having any negative effects on me. Uh, I mean, we were doing it, you know, every other weekend and then that became every weekend. And then the weekends got longer. It went from Friday and Saturday to Thursday, Friday, Saturday to Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then eventually did that happen pretty quick? Uh, it, the progression. Yeah. Probably about a year. Yeah. And it became an everyday thing. Uh, I just love the way they made me feel like it, just the feeling was just incredible, complete numbness. It was, it was great. Um, see that continued through college. Um, the same kid that I got ran over by the church van with, uh, we ended up getting an apartment together and, uh, he didn't do pills very much. We smoked pot a lot and we drank a lot. Um, out of the 365 days we lived in that apartment, I probably drank for 361 of them. Um, and then uh, after our year lease was up, we parted ways. And then uh, I linked back up with some of the old friends from my neighborhood. Um, There's one in particular, his name was Kyle. And we did drugs um, the same as each other. Uh, we were the only two out of our group of friends that really uh, took things to the next level. Um, we experimented with uh, Percocets and uh, cocaine. Um, we tried to out-drink each other all the time. Um, eventually, it led to... Uh, Oxycontin. And then, uh, let's see, there was a time when Oxycontin changed, I don't know what they did, they changed their formula or something. Um, And then you weren't able to crush them up and snort them anymore, or inject them or anything like that. So that's when I noticed heroin started coming around. Uh, Looking back, like I didn't know anything about heroin at the time, but looking back on that time, um, yeah, it was, that's really when heroin started to, uh, to come about. And, um, Were you injecting at any point? Up, like not, the not the pills. pills. Okay. Not the pills, no. Yeah. Um, let's see. After uh, OCs were no longer a thing, um, Kyle introduced me to heroin. Um, he told me that it was pretty much the same exact thing. It was just a lot cheaper and a lot stronger. Uh, you could snort it. You could smoke it. You could inject it. You could do whatever you wanted to with it. Um, we snorted it um, for about a month, and then uh, we eventually started to inject it. Um, so we did that. Uh, I mean, our friendship dissolved, um, somewhere along the way we became more like a partnership. Like I had a car, um, and some money. He got money every once in a while, but he, he knew the connections. He knew where to get all the stuff. Um, so we just used each other. Like we didn't hang out. We didn't, you know, go to the movies or go out to eat or anything like that. Like we just used each other to get, to get high. Um, See that that didn't really last too long until we both got too greedy to share anymore. Right. Uh, by then, I had my own connections, and then he was using his own people. He actually eventually just moved, and he was homeless in Cincinnati. Like he just stayed there. Um, was there a falling out, or just just kind of no? We just, just fizzled uh, out. Yeah, it just dissolved. Yeah. It just disappeared over time. Um, I mean, just like heroin did with pretty much every part of my life. I mean. I dissolved out of my job. Um, I dissolved out of my parents' life, my uh, girlfriend at the time's life, um, er- everything. Um, I dropped out of college. Like everything, it took everything from me. Uh, the the worst of it was, um, well, my over in Kentucky, there's a law called Casey's Law, uh, and that enables family members or friends to have you court ordered into treatment. Um, this whole time, I thought that I was getting away with my drug use. I didn't know my parents knew, um, even though like their jewelry came up missing and all their money was missing. And 
you know, it got so bad to, you know, eventually my mom had to, uh, sleep with her purse underneath her arm. But, um, yeah, so they were doing their own research. They found this law called Casey's law. Um, good friend of mine, uh, the lady who I give credit to me even being alive to her name's uh, Charlotte Wethington. Uh, she's actually the one that started the law, uh, because she lost her son, Casey. Um, but anyways, they, uh, they approached me with this and, um, they said that I needed to go with them to two different doctors, uh, my family doctor, and then some sort of specialist. And, um, they were going to need to sign off on the paperwork. I went willingly. Uh, there was a part of me that wanted to get sober, but I was just too scared. Cause like I'd gone a few days without, you know, without any heroin and, uh, just the withdrawal, the detox. I mean, it was, it was just too much. And I, I wasn't willing to go through that. Um, but at the time, I, the side of me that wanted to get sober, it really uh, shined, if you will. And uh, I agreed to go with my parents to the doctor's offices. Um, we got set up with a court date. The judge gave me a certain amount of time to get into detox. And uh, at the time, there was only one detox in our area. Uh, that was at um, the Drogi House in uh, Dayton, Kentucky. And to get in, court-ordered or not, you had to call every single day uh, just hoping that there was a bed available. And I mean, in my opinion, that was just completely unreasonable and unrealistic to have an active heroin addict who didn't really want to get sober in the first place. who was being forced to go there by the court system, uh, to call every single day for a, a bed that they didn't even want to go to. Are you using this whole time just to stay? Oh yeah. Well, okay. oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so I eventually stopped calling. It was about two weeks in. I stopped calling, um, but my girlfriend at the time and my parents, they kept calling for me. <clears throat> and then one evening I was sitting in the parking lot at my parents' house. And uh, I mean, my mom came out and got me and said my bed was available. You know, let's go pack our things. We got about an hour to get there. Uh, so I snuck away. I did the last, last of my dope and then uh, went. It was like probably 6.30 in the evening when we went. Um, I left the very next morning. Um, I was there for like 18 hours total. Um, I don't know. I woke up and I just realized the hell that I was in. And I, I mean, they all warned me. They told me that there was going to be a warrant put out for my arrest. I was going to be on the run, you know, and I was just going to end up back there anyways, but I didn't care. Like my plan from that point was to die before the cops found me. Um, and I made a good little run out of it. I was, I was on the run for about four months. Um, I lived in the backseat of my car. <laughs> so after I absconded from uh, the drogi house, I called an old friend. I, he wasn't really my friend at the time, but uh, I called an old friend of mine and he came and got me, took me to my parents' house. I broke in through their back window, stole their laptop, their their car, and then went to the pawn shop. Were they there? No, okay. they were both at work. Um, I got there as quickly as I could because mm -hmm. I knew that they said that they were going to call my parents as soon as I left. So, I was, you know, we were, we were hauling it. Yeah. Um, but anyways, after I grabbed the, uh, the laptop and the, uh, and the car, I went straight to the pawn shop, sold it, you know, made my trip to the dope boy and then felt better. I didn't really think about the situation that I put myself in. Um, since my parents were the ones that filed Casey's law, they were just going to call the cops on me. So I lost my parents. They were, home was where I was staying. So now I'm homeless. I quit my job because I went to detox. So I don't have any income. Um, yeah, I was, I didn't know what to do. So I, uh, I pulled the car into a, um, emergency room parking lot in Florence, Kentucky. 
And uh, that's that's where I posted up. I was there for probably about two months. What made you do? What made you go there? I, you know what? I don't know. I just felt like that was the safest place to be. Hmm. Um, I figured if anybody looked in the car and saw me sleeping, I could just tell them, like, yeah, I've got somebody in there. I'm really stressed out. I'm really tired. I just want to sleep. That so I came sense. out here. Yeah. So I don't know. But eventually the car battery died and uh, the windows were down. It was winter time. And um, yeah, it was just a bad situation. So I ended up upgrading and moving into my girlfriend's car, which wasn't any better. It didn't have any heat, but at least the windows rolled up. Um, so there was one night in particular. It was an extra bad night. Um, I just got really emotional. I was, I mean, heading towards withdrawal. I didn't have any more dope. I didn't have any money. And, um, so I decided to go to the grocery store and steal a couple boxes of sleeping pills. Um, I knew the cops were going to find me eventually. So I decided that I was just going to steal some sleeping pills, keep them on me at all times. That way, when the cops finally did show up, I was just going to take them and end it all. So that's what I did. Um, I stole three boxes of sleeping pills, uh, put them in a cigarette pack and then kept them in my pocket always like they never left my side and then one night um i was in the parking lot where i had been staying and the cops showed up and they said that they got a call from somebody saying that there was somebody in their parking lot stealing or you know breaking in the cars and stuff so they just stopped me out of um i don't know just out of chance like i just happened to be there uh, it actually wasn't me this time um normally it would have been but i didn't actually break into those cars uh so when the cops took my license, they went back to their car and I took all the sleeping pills. There's probably about 60 or 70 of them. Um, you so, took them all right then, yeah. one time. Yeah. Yeah, they went to their car and uh, I knew I wasn't in their view anymore. So I, I took every single one of them. Um, that was a Sunday night. I was taken to Boone County Jail. And then I woke up Wednesday morning in Kenton County Jail. I had no idea how I got there. Um, all I remember, the first thing I remember is one of the COs banging on the door and asking me if I knew where I was. And I said, yeah, I'm at the hospital. And then he held up that pink Kenton County Detention Center jumpsuit. I was like, what is going on? Like, I just tried to kill myself and you didn't take me to the hospital. Like, are you kidding me? Like, That's... it was it was a weird feeling because I was pissed because I wasn't dead. Mm. But I was also pissed at them for not doing anything to try to save my life other than just taking my clothes and putting me on suicide watch. I agree. That's that's confusing. I mean, obviously, they they knew that you had to be just – something was up, right? You had to be catatonic yeah, that's to what, a certain extent, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, I was unresponsive. Like I said, I, I lost three days somehow. Like, I don't remember anything, none of it. So, for them to just let me lie there right. with no – I mean, they they – Gave me food, apparently. Um, obviously, I didn't eat it because I was unconscious. But, I mean, they let me go two or three days without eating or uh, going to the bathroom or showering or anything. Like, they just let me lay there. Were they dicks? Uh, I knew a couple of them from high school. Okay. Yeah, they were dicks. Yeah. Um, well, one of them was cool. But, right. you know, whatever. Um, and so, after that, I spent uh, eight days on suicide watch. And uh, what that means is you don't have any clothes. You don't have silverware. You have no contact with the general population. Uh, you have no mattress, no books, nothing. It's just you in a concrete cell. Uh, my bed was uh, a slab of concrete that was raised like four inches off of the rest of the concrete. And I did that for eight days. And then finally, they evaluated me over and over again and 
you know, they came to the conclusion that I was no longer suicidal. So uh, sent me the general population. I was there for like three more weeks and then released. And then I went to um, the Grateful Life Center from there. Um, so d- after those three days that you were there unconscious, did you start threatening that you wanted to kill yourself? Is that why they put you on suicide watch or did they just figure since you were? I guess they just figured. Okay. I mean, I, I like I said, I don't remember any of it. So right. I might have said something off the wall like that. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Um, actually never really thought about it. I'm assuming they just knew that like, okay, this guy did something. I didn't know if you woke up defiant the, the same way as you were when you took the pills. Like if you, if you woke up and said, you know, fuck this, I want to die. And that's what they, that's what made them put you in the, in the suicide watch. So I was just curious. Yeah. I don't, I don't think so, but I mean, it's, it's possible. That, right. Yeah. Um, let's see. Well, after I was released, I was sent to the, uh, to the Grateful Life Center. Um, place had a, a huge part of uh, me being sober today. But um, I, they gave me two hours to get there. And I was kind of scared and relieved all at the same time. Like uh, the withdrawal was over. I was lucky enough to sleep all the way through it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I woke up feeling, you know, drained. You know, I hadn't eaten in three days, so I felt tired. But other than that, I felt fine. So went to the Grateful Life Center and, you know, I walk in and there was one of the peer mentors. He was doing my, uh, my intake. And then I, I heard a voice and it was, uh, I look up and it was Kyle. And, um, I thought he had died. Like I hadn't talking, I haven't spoken to him for probably about a year at this point. And, um, I was just so relieved to see him. I don't even know if I was more relieved for myself or, you know, that he was able to get in there and, and, you know, that he was still alive. Like I, I don't know. I was so happy to see him. And then uh, he linked me up with the good, with the right people. He showed me, I mean, the whole program was nuts. Like it was just full of, you know, meetings and, you know, classes and be here at this time and wake up, you know, it was just, it was nuts. Um, but yeah, I mean, he kind of took me under his wing and showed me around and uh, made sure I was where I was supposed to be at what time. Um, let's see, I, I was there for about six months when he graduated and then after he got out, he just completely disappeared. Um, and we had all seen this before. Um, I didn't want to believe it, but I mean, he had relapsed. Like I, I knew deep down that he had relapsed, uh, you know, and I don't know. I was just like, how can you be given a second chance like this and just throw it away? Like you had it, man. Um, but he was gone. And then, uh, about two or three months later, it was my time. I was there for a total of 10 and a half months before I graduated the program. And um, the day that I moved out, my grandfather passed away. And then about two or three weeks after that, I had a son who was born while I was in uh, residential treatment. And um, see, when I got out, he was about six months old. So after my grandfather passed away, two or three weeks after that, we found out my son was born with two holes in his heart and was going to have to have open heart surgery to repair him. And, um, I mean, the Grateful Life Center, they did wonders for me. They linked me up with a bunch of good people, taught me how to make my bed, get up, uh, you know, at a reasonable hour, go to bed at a good time. You know, they they did a lot for me. But they didn't teach me how to grieve, and they didn't teach me how to handle that kind of stress of, like, possibly losing my six-year-old son mm-hmm. or six-month-old son. Mm-hmm. And um, so we took him to Children's Hospital, and uh, I mean, he's fine now. He's seven uh, he plays baseball, gets good grades. Uh, apparently, he's already got like 16 girlfriends or something like that. 
Um, so he's doing, he's doing really well now, but, um, at the time, you know, when he was going through that surgery, we had him at children's and the ironic part about that was it was like three blocks over from where I used to get my heroin from. Um, while I was hanging out with him at the hospital, um, we were there for two weeks and, um, yeah, I didn't do any recovery stuff. I didn't go to my meetings. I didn't talk to my sponsor. Like I didn't, I didn't do anything that I was like taught to do. Um, so one night I went to UDF on Burnett and a dope boy offered me a free sample. Uh, I didn't take it. Uh, I was actually pretty proud that I was able to look him in the eye and tell him like, Hey, look, I've been clean for almost a year now. So, I mean, thanks. Where were you a year ago? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but then I don't know, man, it didn't leave my mind after that. I began to obsess over it and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And it wasn't two days before I went out looking for it. I was like, all I got to do is be a white guy in Cincinnati and I can get the shit for free. So that's what I did. And uh, I don't know, needless to say, I just kept going, uh, dropped right back down into my addiction and used for about another year. How long was your son in the hospital? Uh, the first time we were there for, uh, let's see, 10 days, I think, or 11 days. And then after we went back and he actually had the surgery, um, the surgery plus the recovery, we were there for another 13 days. So, so the whole was, time you were just bopping back and forth? Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I started, you know, the lies came back. You know, I was like, yeah, well, I need to go, I don't know, let the dog out maybe. Or, you know, I'm going to go get us some new clothes from the house. or You know, and then I'd be gone for, you know, six or seven hours. And that's just the, I mean, that's just the obsessive, insane obsession that people, you know, some people don't get is, you know. They would say, how the fuck can a guy have a son in the hospital and he's doing this? But, I mean, it's just when it's got you, man, that was, it, it's got you. Yeah, and that's priority one. I couldn't I couldn't control it. That was yeah. my stress reliever. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like some people go on walks or take yoga classes or have a stress ball. You know what yeah. I mean? I had a needle. Yeah. That's that's what I used. That's, that was my default. Um, so I used for about another year and then uh, – I can't somehow managed to remain employed this entire time. Um, but we went up, I went up with one of the servers I was working with and, uh, she, let's see, we stopped up, we went to Cincinnati, got what we needed and I just couldn't wait to get back to work. So, uh, we pulled off in Kroger's parking lot in Fort Thomas and, uh, we got high there and, uh, a cop just sat there and watched me do it. Um, as soon as I was done, I, he came up, knocked on my window and said, okay, where's it at? And I was busted. I mean, obviously there was no getting out of that one. So I just handed him over, handed over my, my spoon and my rig and that was it. Went back to jail. Uh, did three more months. And then, uh, I don't know, after I got out, I just picked back up where I left off. I started going back to AA again, um, reworked the steps, uh, more thoroughly this time. Uh, then, um, how old were you at this point? How old was I? Yeah. Uh, 26, Okay. maybe 27. Uh, but I started sponsoring guys of my own. Um, I started going back to the Grateful Life Center and, you know, I was helping those guys out. I was volunteering, you know, I was literally doing anything I could. Like AA became my life. I'm like, okay, so if I don't do AA, I'm going to relapse. So I'm just going to do AA all the time. So, and that's what I did. Um, and during that time, let's see, I got a, I got a different job. Uh, I started working at Bonefish as a, uh, as a cook there. Love to cook. Love to cook. Um, 
met a good girl there. Um, I split up with my you know ex at some point during all that madness, and then uh, I started dating a girl named Megan. She was uh, one of the servers, and I mean, I don't know. We we locked eyes through the expo window one day at work, and uh, we've been together ever since. And we're getting married on October fifth, so thirty two awesome. days. <laughs> thirty two days. Um, yeah, I don't know. And then I, I just kept doing AA. Uh, I got back into college. I decided that I wanted to go to be a uh, chemical dependency counselor. Um, I didn't really know ever like what I wanted to do when I grew up. It was just, um, I don't know. Like I just never really worried about it, but that, I mean, my addiction kind of took me, it led me to my career path. And, uh, I work now as a addictions counselor at, uh, at Brightview health up in Ohio. I work at the Fairfield location. Um, yeah, so after I got sober, I didn't really have any place to go necessarily. So I ended up, uh, well, Megan and I, we moved in together and then um, we had this falling out and, you know, and then I ended up moving back into a sober living house. Um, the crazy part is the sober living house that I ended up moving into, um, Kyle also lived there. Uh, he was the house manager and we were roommates. So I was there for... About 10 months, um, there towards the end, uh, I don't know, Kyle had about nine months sober and, uh, there was a guy that he worked at club chef with and he offered him some, uh, some Percocets to sell for him. Well, Kyle ended up taking them, uh, and he relapsed. Um, after the Percocets were gone, you know, it took him like two days. He was right back, right back shooting, shooting heroin. Um, I hadn't, I already knew, um, like we were inseparable when we were at the sober living house. Uh, but after he relapsed, he would stay on, he would stay out all night. Uh, he wouldn't text me back. He wasn't paying his rent. Uh, so I, I knew exactly what was going on. One evening we, uh, took a trip up to little Caesars and got some pizza, uh, before I had to go to work. And, um, let's see, he, uh, well, he fessed up. He, he told me what was going on. He said, look, like, Dude gave me some Percocets. I was supposed to sell them. I, I ate them instead, and you know I don't I don't I don't know what to do. I told him, uh, well, man, I gotta you know I gotta work tonight. I'm off the next two days though, so just go back to the sober living house. I'll come straight home, and then we'll we'll get you right. We'll go to some meetings. We'll get you back into the Grateful Life Center if we need to. Um, but I've got you, and uh, <clears throat> that was the last conversation I had with him. Three days later. The uh, the guy that owned the sober living house and myself, we uh, we were out looking for him and we we found him. Man, that's heavy. Um, he was uh, dead in the back of his van in a Walmart parking lot, and uh, yeah, that was that was rough. It's still rough. Um, that was uh, September twenty third, so uh, it's uh, his four year anniversary is coming up. <laughs> Um, from there, uh, I was accompanied by, uh, two Fort Wright police officers to his parents' house. And, uh, I was given the, the honor of telling his dad that I found his son. Mm. Um, I don't know, I don't know what was worse, uh, finding Kyle like that or the look on his dad's face. I'm sorry, man. That's, that had to be. Super tough. You're still working through that. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah, it still stings a little. Yeah. You're writing a book. Right? I am. About, yeah. about Kyle. 
in his life. The first chapter is uh, my experience with Kyle. Mm-hmm. Um, it included a, a lot of the story that, that I just told. Um, yeah, so that's the uh, that's the first chapter. Um, it's pretty much dedicated to his family. You know, I mean, he... As far as I know, I'm the only person that he that he reached out to, you know, and I let him down. So I know it, he made his own decisions. I know it's him passing away it isn't my fault. Uh, I still carry a lot of guilt because of that, though, because um, I don't know. Like I chose to go to work instead of help my best friend. Um, yeah, so it hurts. I just I torture myself sometimes just yeah. with the, you know, what ifs. Like, mm-hmm. what if I hadn't gone to work? What if I just would have called off? What if uh, I would have taken him straight to Drogi, you know, at that moment? You know, would he still be here, you know? And he had a son, too. Um, you know, he was young. I think he was just like a year and a half old at the time. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's rough. So, so how do you work How do you work, work through that? I mean, you stayed sober, which, well, is, you I, know, which is great. Well, my, uh, his parents, I mean, we were really close. They'd invite me over to their house to, you know, to, to eat dinner or whatever, whether Kyle was there or not. You know, we were, we were like family. And, uh, it wasn't until about a year after Kyle passed away. Um, I went over there and kind of told him what happened. You know, I, I told him why I feel so guilty. Um, I told him that he reached out to me and I didn't do anything, you know, and all this. So that night I made him a promise that I would never put another addict on hold. Again, if they reached out to me for help, yeah. like, fuck my job. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, your life's worth more than that. Right. So, and that's how I do it. Um, that was actually the the moment when Kyle passed away. Um, it was just shortly after that. That's when I changed my major and uh, decided to go for chemical dependency. So that's when all that happened. Um, and I've been trying to keep that promise I made to his parents ever since. A lot of us, when we have that, whatever event that changes everything, we often change, you know, our, our lives to turn around and do what you're doing. I mean, I did the same thing, but, um, that, you know, it's an honorable thing that, that you did. It's honorable thing that you're able to keep his legacy alive with this, whether it's a chapter in the book or, um, so is the book about your life? Yeah. Yeah. The, okay. the, the first chapter is his story or my experience with him. Right. Uh, the second part is my story. And then the third part is going to be, um, just like different resources. Uh, my opinion and views on the more, uh, you know, controversial things like is, is medically assisted treatment sober or not? Mm. Um, you know, is church good enough? You know, it's just stuff like that, yeah. you know, um, Narcan, you know, I mean, a lot of people frown on Narcan because why right. are we keeping these addicts alive? Sure. Why are we wasting all this money? I need EpiPens. Yeah. Don't take it out on us, dude. Right. <laughs> We're not the one making the rules. And so I touch on a bunch of that stuff. And then actually I just had a thought um, just about a week ago that I might ask my uh, my parents to kind of write their version, their view That's of uh, raising a son who grew up to be a heroin addict um, just to give like, you know, me being a friend of an addict, you know, that perspective, my own perspective, and then having my parents' perspective too, I think that would really bring sure, you know, the you know, the triangle together. Right. You know? So when so when you were going through everything, 
how was the the relationship with your family, with your parents, as you as things kind of progressed? I mean, how to talk a little bit about that? Oh, it was it, our relationship was almost completely non-existent. Uh, the only time that we had any contact with each other at all is when I needed money for gas or needed money for uh, parking or needed money for food because I was going out with a friend. Um, all of which went to uh, the dope boy. It mm-hmm. didn't go for food or parking or gas or anything. Um, but that was that was what our relationship turned into. I mean, as I said, towards the beginning, uh, I mean, my mom, she had to sleep with her purse, you know. Um, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I army crawled up the stairs and, you know, into their bedrooms just to see what they had. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. How has it progressed when you turn it around? How is it now? Uh, well, uh, at first I was, um, excited. I mean, I I still am excited, but like after I got out of jail, after those three months, um, it was a fresh start. Like, I don't know something, I felt like something clicked. Um, I felt like I had it. I felt good. You know what I mean? Like I I felt like I knew I I looked back, I had a lot of time to reflect and, uh, I looked back and I was able to see where I messed up, um, what I should have done instead. And I just, uh, just built on that. So I pretty much had to start over. You know what I mean? I had to get a new job. Um, I had to get a new car. I had to become self-supporting again by getting my own place and paying my own bills. Um, yeah, I just started over. Got into college, changed my major, graduated from college, decided to keep going. Went to a uh, book seminar, decided to write a book. Um, I'm actually a a father now, like a, a real father. Uh, I've got four kids, uh, three from my previous relationship. Uh, got Christian, he's seven. Uh, Myla, she's six. And Riley, she's four. Uh, she'll be five in December. And then uh, Megan, my fiance, and I, we have the most perfect little girl I've ever seen in my life. Uh, her name's Marley. And she will be two on Halloween. I didn't put this together until after we talked, but your wife is a trainer mm-hmm. at the gym where I work out yeah and marley is the cutest little thing i mean she she pumps iron with us oh. and you know she's the best i mean she really is a cute a cute little yeah, girl she, so she's, she started walking at 10 months old she started deadlifting at 11 yes, months old yes. like she is crazy i mean she her, actually the form is perfect not, it's really funny not even two years old yet and i got a snapchat from megan uh while i was at work earlier today and she peed for the first time on the potty. Real potty. Today. Yeah. Not even two years old yet. She's brilliant. I swear she's going to take over the world. That's great, man. What a driver to keep to keep it rolling. So um, let's talk about cooking. Mm. You have a your own little business that you've, that you, uh, like a personal chef? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it kind of just came out of nowhere. I, I went to culinary school like over a decade ago before heroin came into the picture. Um so I always loved to cook. I just kind of got stuck in the restaurant industry and that just sucked the passion for cooking right out of me. Um, but it's been a while. And then one of Megan's clients, um, she's the wife of a Cincinnati Bengals player. I'm not going to mention who, but yeah. Um, yeah, she just in normal conversation was like, yeah, we used to have a personal chef and it didn't really work out, but we're thinking about getting another one. And Megan responded with, well, Matt, went to culinary school. Why don't you just hire him? I'm sure he'll do it. And, uh, as soon as she told me that, and I was like, I got the opportunity to cook for a Bengals player. I, 
started my business in like 45 minutes after yeah. I heard that. Um, incredibly easy too, by the way, incredibly easy to start your own business. But yeah, it's called uh, Empower Meals um, with the letter M, no no E or anything, just Empower. Um, right now, he's you know the, that family is my only client. But come October, I don't know if Megan's going to be mad at me for saying this or not. But in October, we're going to actually roll out um, and be up for hire. Basically, uh, we just wanted to wait until after the wedding and everything kind of calmed down. Um, is she involved? Is she? Oh yeah, she's the creative one. Okay. I do all the knife cuts and yeah. you know, the cooking and stuff. She is the one that kind of tells me what to do. Like she's a mess. She's a mess, but her brain is genius. It's very yeah. colorful, you know? So she tells me like, this would probably be good with this or that would be good. And then I'd make it happen. So that's, that's, that's what we do. And it works out really well because we would love to keep it focused on either do something with addicts later on down the road, or since she's already got the end as a personal trainer, you know, just uh, focusing on athletes for now. Um, so I think it's I think it's going to do really well. I mean, we're both passionate about it, and um, so it'll stay. The plan is for it to stay personal chef versus like catering or. Yeah, well, when it comes, I would rather do the personal chef, um, just because if you if I start catering and like delivering food and doing meal prep for people and stuff like that, um, it's one thing if I do it in your kitchen, but if I don't do it in your kitchen, I either have to have my kitchen certified, which costs a lot of money. Or, you know, rent a commercial kitchen or whatever, right. which also costs a lot of money. Yeah. So, so now you just go and you use everybody else's stuff. and Yeah, but know. I clean it. I sure, clean sure, it. sure. Yeah. So you were part of, uh, featured on a show called The Addiction Series. Mm-hmm. What was it like and what, what is it? Oh, man, The Addiction Series. <laughs> it's, um, there's a guy named Shane Reinhardt. He's the one that really put this thing together. Um he has a passion for uh, for addicts, really. Uh, that's what it came down to. So he uh, started reaching out to different people in recovery and just asked if they if he could film their story and put it on YouTube. Um, I was one of the first ones to do it, and uh, I mean it was it was a blast. You know, we went to uh, his studio. I don't know if he's still there or not, but um, yeah, it's just this studio, just like this one. And I just sat in front of a camera and told my story. It was very, it was kind of awkward. (laughs) I had never really, uh, you know, just looked right at a camera and told my story before. I've done public speaking numerous times, but never to myself. It was kind of, kind of weird. It was great. And it's uh, it's gaining a lot of traction, the whole thing, right? Is he still doing it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's in, oh, man. He put a post on Facebook not too long ago about how many countries that it's reached. And it's crazy. It's crazy. It's like over a hundred different countries or something like that. It was, I can't believe it. Is it all tri-state local people or is he? He, he has a couple um, like that are out of the area. Um, those are obviously more difficult to do, mm-hmm. but he's got a couple that's called in and done it over the phone. Um, yeah. He's, uh, he's really killing it. Man, yeah. Man, he's, he's doing, he's doing great. And then um, you're involved with uh, people advocating recovery or PAR. Is that? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, I was the chairman of that organization. Um, I stepped down about two months ago. Just uh, just lots of stuff going on. Sure. You know, full-time college student, the book that I'm you know, still editing, um, trying to be a father, spend more time with my family, mm-hmm. trying to, you know, keep myself in shape by going to the gym, working full-time. Like it's, there's, a, there's just a lot, you know, the wedding we're getting ready for. Um, so yeah, I stepped down, but we, uh, 
I did that for close to two years. Um, really enjoyed the time that I had with them, but it was, um, we did different uh, fundraisers and um, we actually just had our uh, second annual Recovery Rocks event that was at the Southgate House. Um, that was on August 24th and it was a blast. We had a couple of local bands that came out and played. Um, we had uh, Eli's Barbecue that catered. We had Split the Pot, Silent Auctions. It was it was a really good time. Um, so it was cool to be involved with, uh, with those. And then um, something we had been working on for pretty much the whole time that we were there together was... Um, starting a scholarship to help people get into sober living homes. So whether that be from uh, jail into sober living or treatment into sober living or, you know, the streets to sober living, whatever, um, you know, we started setting money aside so that we could, you know, if they needed it, uh, they could fill out an application, you know, kind of uh, tell us a little bit like what's going on, what's your story, how long you've been sober, do you have a sponsor, um, what happened, like why are you in the situation? And then um, we were focusing on getting – two people like $200 or $160 um, to get into sober living uh, each month. So I was really excited to be a part of that. Yeah. yeah it's going to be, it's going to be big. Yeah. That's cool. So I want to talk about stigma. That's a big part of this show and huh. a big passion of mine just because it's, it's so bad. It might, I think it might be getting a little bit better, but through your journey and, and what you do now, how do you see stigma affect uh um this, this community and the public at large well i would agree with you that it is getting better um i think back when i was first trying to get sober or when i was still using um it was uh way way worse than it is now uh, i can't tell you how many times like i heard someone say just let them die you know what i mean like i don't know it, which really saddens me to be honest with you because i mean if if i was left for dead i mean if i wasn't around anymore like i'm a flipping addictions counselor now like it could be your son or your daughter or you that i'm helping you know what i mean like i wouldn't be here you know if it, if it wasn't for people in aa and like places like the grateful life center you know and having a good family and friends you know people that didn't give up on me like if it wasn't for them i wouldn't be around to possibly help someone that you know yeah. We had um, a guest on here that said, uh, it's Tom Sinan, who's the police chief oh, of yeah. uh, Newtown. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's a great guy. But he said that's the only group of anybody that openly says, uh, even considers letting people die. Yeah. Well, we're doing it to ourselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We chose to do this. Yeah. So, I mean, it is it is still strong. So, how are you at Brightview? kind of trying to put a tourniquet on that uh, well basically i mean it's my uh approach is very simple if i have any of my patients who are struggling um with feeling stigmatized or uh having trouble um like processing people accepting them or not like i, I write down i get one of my sticky notes and i write down rule number one fuck what they think like you're why are you in treatment why are you in treatment? Mm -hmm. And then we just start building off of that. I mean, like what brought you here? Are you here because of them? Mm -hmm. And because you're tired of them talking to you like shit? Or are you here because you actually want to get your life back on track and live? Do you want a job? Do you want to see your kids again? It's such a hard, that's such a hard concept to, 
to come to terms with though in the beginning. Oh, it, because you're so worried about what people think. Yeah. And uh, always been looking for the, you know, like you said, fitting in and being able to kind of uh, how do I show my worth? Um, so, but once you see somebody come through there and have that light go off and figure out that it doesn't matter and that they are doing it for themselves, it's a pretty, pretty exciting thing. So yeah. I'm sure what you do is a very fulfilling um, line of work and, and you get to see it every day and, and help people grind through their stuff. And yeah. It, it's uh, probably the most exhausting thing I've ever done, but it is, it's worth it. Um, I made a promise to a family. I uh, made a commitment to myself and to my parents. Um, I don't know. I, I brought purpose to to my past, you know, mm-hmm. and this is how I found to do it. And um, yeah, when I'm able to, we have a lot of a lot of people that come in and out. I mean, that's just uh, I don't know. Unfortunate part about this, um, but I mean, the ones that really stay around and. I get to watch them get their lives back on track. Um, I mean, it makes me cry. Sure, <laughs> like I cry sure. a lot because yeah. of it, you know, I mean, I had, I had one of my patients. I mean, she had struggled for, for years with heroin and meth use. And I mean, she's in college now. Blows me away. Yeah. Blows me away. Like seeing her a year ago when she came in to what she is now. It's just, uh, it's unbelievable. You give really people is. the opportunity to do. I mean, you ask them, what do you want to do with your life? Which a lot of these people probably have never been asked that question, yeah. given that opportunity. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it is, it's, it's truly amazing. And be able to see that on a daily basis is probably, you know, I'm yeah. sure it's awesome. Yeah. And I'm sure yeah. it is exhausting because, you know, you, you get fatigued and try and help people. You're banging your head up against the wall because they keep going in and out, even though you know what that's all about. It's still tough. When, oh, when people get a second chance and they they go back out, but it's so yeah. frustrating. Yeah, it's so frustrating. I'm like, dude, you're doing so great. Why did you do this? You know, it's definitely frustrating. But I mean, yeah. just be there for them. You know, I didn't get it on my first try either. Sure, you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, my hand will stay reached out. You know, for whenever they are ready. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for being here. Sure, I, I appreciate the time, and you've had a hell of a road, and. Uh, Congrats on your upcoming marriage, and um, I'll be thinking about you, and uh, good luck down the road. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.